Jesus' prayer. And uh, this morning, I hope to bless you with my message, which is called, uh, it's uh, Paul's actual second missionary uh, journey that begins. And the message is Unleashing the Power Within, How the Holy Spirit Empowers and Guides Through Roadblocks. And I thought the title would be fitting because we do live in Montreal and uh, we're quite used to uh, dealing with roadblocks. As you see there, I, I put uh, a picture of a Montreal roadblock to kind of create with you an emotional connection on this subject. <laughs> There's a story of a pastor who um, is going to his church for an important meeting and once he gets there, he notices there's all kinds of roadblocks in front of his church. So, so he, and then now he's really nervous. He goes, oh, how am I, how, what am I going to do? He goes around the block to see if he can find parking. Comes around a second time, and again, he can't find parking because all these roadblocks. So he goes, I got to go back a third time. He goes back a third time. It's a long block. It's a dense part of the city. And he comes back, and the third time, he still can't find parking. So what does he decide to do? He just parks the car there. And, and he takes a chance and he then puts a note on, on, the car, on, the, on the windshield. He says, dear officer, in case he gets a ticket, I went around the block three times, couldn't find parking, had to leave it here. And then in quotations he writes, forgive us our trespasses. <laughs> sure enough, the policeman, uh, policeman would come around and he sees the car, proceeds to give uh, the guy a ticket and as he's putting the ticket on the car, he sees the note. He reads it, and then he turns it around. He says, I'm a new policeman in this territory. If I don't get a, give you a ticket, I can lose my job. In quotations, lead us not into temptation. <laughs> Signed, the policeman. <laughs> in the verses today, we will look at, to see how the disciples will overcome more serious, more significant roadblocks that will be very consequential in the spreading of the gospel. The Holy Spirit continues to be very active as Paul and, and Barnabas prepare to go on their second missionary journey to teach, to preach, uh, to witness to the Jews, the Gentiles, and the converts that they've seen on their first trip. And in this uh, specific section of Acts, we're going to see how the Holy Spirit will work in dramatic fashion in redirecting the plans of the missionaries. These divine interventions will ultimately enable the gospel to reach the farthest corners of the earth. So my big idea today is how the Holy Spirit empowers and guides the mission through roadblocks. How the Holy Spirit empowers and guides through roadblocks. And what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna try to lay out for you four scenes I will cover in these 20 verses. And uh, the, the first scene is a conflict that multiplies the mission. And in this scene, we have the famous disagreement between Barnabas and Paul. In the second scene, we see a new star, that, a new star disciple that strengthens a mission. And uh, in this part of the scripture, we have uh, Timothy who's being introduced uh, and joins the mission team. And in the third scene, we have a divine vision that redirects the mission, and that's the vision of the Macedonian man. And finally, in scene four, we have a new frontier that expands the mission, and that's when uh, uh, Paul uh, and his journeymates cross the Aegean and uh, meet their first uh, uh, um, convert who uh, 
would be the first convert in Europe as we know it today. So, and then I will end with concluding thoughts. So let me pray and then we'll, we'll get started. Father, we just come before you today and again, we, uh, we are so uh, grateful uh, to be in, in your presence and uh, uh, just to, um, to be brothers and sisters on this journey together. And as we journey together, uh, Lord, we know that we will uh, come across roadblocks and obstacles and barriers uh, that are outside and that are within us. I pray, Lord, that today the message that we will have, the verses we will read, uh, the thoughts that will be shared will be expressed from you through me and that we will all be edified by this. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me read for you the first scene, which is Acts 15, 36 to 41. And these are, this is what it says. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. And Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So the first thing we see here is the purpose of the trip. Paul and Barnabas decided it would be a good idea to revisit the churches they previously established. And so it is a twofold purpose to this trip. One is to edify the brothers and sisters that they've already met there and that have already been converted. And then it's to share the important agreement that was reached at the Jerusalem Council in Antioch. And this Louis spoke about last week, and he did a very good job in, in explaining that. And I would encourage you to listen to that message because it has a lot of detail about what, it, what that agreement meant. But I will just review it for you uh, for uh, just a quick, uh, quick review. Uh, to set the context for what I'm going to be talking about today. So the Jerusalem Council, the reason for it is because the Jews and Gentiles are now under one roof. They are now converting to Christ, and, and so they are now assembling together. And the Jews were concerned about maintaining some of the elements of the Mosaic law. And so they, they gathered together in Antioch to discuss this important issue. And after a lengthy discussion with many leaders involved, they decided on these four restrictions, uh, four abstentions, which were to abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, to abstain from blood, to abstain from what was strangled, and to abstain from sexual immorality. Note, the spirit of this agreement is not the abstentions. The spirit of the agreement is that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is the reason for that. Now, there is these restrictions were concessions to preserve the unity between these two groups who are coming together with very different traditions and very different customs. So they were sociological rather than theological, okay? It's for them to be assembling socially and being able to be united. They weren't conditional to one salvation, but rather to encourage unity in the church. 
What Louis also highlighted last week, and I think it's important I mention it again, is that they resolved this issue in a peaceable manner. They appear to be uh, practicing some healthy conflict resolution skills, okay? So they allowed each person to share, to talk about their point of view, and everybody stayed silent while the other one spoke. And then finally, having the Holy Spirit really uh, tell, uh, instruct them as to what the right thing would be. And so they did come up with a very good agreement. And so now we are uh, going on this trip with this information to share with others. What were the places that they were visiting on their first journey that they wanted to revisit again this time? So I want to do a quick recap of the places they want to revisit there. And I have my clicker here. I don't know if you can see this, but there's a little red thing there. Okay, three things I want to highlight here of this trip because I'm going to be talking about it today. The first thing is, the first place they go here is in Cyprus, okay? And there's an important conversion there of a man named Sergius Paulus who is the proconsul of the Cyprus. And he would be very influential in sharing the gospel and allowing the gospel to permeate his territory, and then in Antioch too, because he would be traveling to those areas. And then we get to Pamphylia here. And what we remember about Pamphylia here, and is important to the discussion today, is John, who's also called Mark, decides, you know what, I think I'm going back to Jerusalem. Uh, he kind of, we don't know why he, he left. It's not spelled out in the scripture. It could have been he was homesick. It could have been he wasn't agreeing with uh, the uh, ministry to the Gentiles. It could have been he didn't like the food. I don't know. The Bible doesn't spell out exactly what it is, but that's where John Mark would abandon uh, Paul and Barnabas. And then they would both, uh, Paul and Barnabas would travel by themselves, and then they would get to this area here where they would encounter significant persecution, and uh, Paul actually got stoned to death, but he survived, okay? He had been able to survive that, and he should have been dead. So those are the three things, and of course, uh, a lot of good things happened there because many people were converted. Many people were saved through that first visit. So now Barnabas, uh, so Paul now wants to return. He's the guy who initiates the second visit. He says, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. But Barnabas wants to take John Mark, and Paul thinks it's unwise. Uh, and here we get to the first roadblock. First roadblock is that Paul and Barnabas disagree. They come to a stalemate. And the expression sharp disagreement in Greek is par paroximos, which means a state of irritation expressed in argument. How do you like my Greek so far? Uh, so first, I want to I mention the fact that I appreciate that Luke doesn't shy away from reporting the conflict. The Bible in its entirety, it's not sanitized to make everything look good. Okay? If somebody wanted to fool us about the Bible and fool us into believing in Christ, they would sanitize everything and make it look good. right? But the Bible doesn't do that. And, you know, because of that, it teaches us that the Bible has integrity and its honesty. It's not a made-up thing. It also normalizes the conflict and shows that God can accomplish his purposes even through disagreement. But you say, how can conflict be beneficial when it's so difficult, right? Conflict can affect us in so many ways. It affects us physically, 
emotionally, spiritually, it can really do a number on us. It can be draining, leaving us paralyzed, wrestling with feelings of anger and disappointment. I'm sure if I asked you people, how many of you enjoy conflict, I'm not gonna get a lot of show of hands. And the people who would want it would be too shy to do it. Unfortunately, conflict is unavoidable and sometimes necessary in God's economy, as we'll see today. We must learn to understand and make it work for us the best we can. It's a roadblock, if well navigated, can lead to positive outcome. Personally, I tend to be conflict averse. I grew up in a home where, uh, you know, we were uh, conditioned to try to get along with each other. You know, don't be argumentative. I remember my, one of my, my grandmothers was like that. As soon as she heard a voice, hey, stop screaming, you gotta get along. And uh, that really worked throughout our whole family. My wife's completely different. They tell each other exactly what's on their mind. And, and then, but after they've said their piece, it's like, love you, love you, love you. And I'm just like, if I would talk like that to my family, we'd never be speaking again. I remember at work, I was uh, averse to conflict when I was in sales. Uh, I, when, we, when the customer had a problem, I would, it would scare me to think, oh, I now I have to go there and handle this problem. There's gonna be a back and forth and, and they're gonna be argumentative. And, and so, but with time I realized that it was an opportunity to develop a friendship, a relationship with the customer that otherwise I wasn't able to do. So turning that into an opportunity was helpful to me in my career. Sometimes I would lose the business, and that's good too, because now you know where you stand, and you can, they can go their way, and, and I could go mine. So back to this disagreement with Paul and Barnabas. It appears their personality profiles may have played a role in the, in the difference of opinion about John Mark. So let's look at Barnabas' personality profile. We know he, up to now, we've read a lot about him. He's a prominent figure in, in Acts, known for his abilities to instruct and to encourage. And this will be the last time that he's mentioned in the book of Acts. He's first introduced in Acts as Joseph, who was also called Barnabas, which is a name ascribed to him for his character of being an encourager. <clears throat> The reason people have two names in the Bible is diverse, so you have to do proper interpretation. Uh, so for example, John was called Mark. Uh, John is his ethnic name, is his Jewish name, and Mark is his Roman name. So that's why you have John who's also called Mark. Another example would be Abraham, right? Abraham then was given the name Abraham. Abraham was given the name Abraham by God. And that, what, the reason for that was it was a covenant. It, it represented a covenant between God and Abraham, that he would multiply his descendants like the sands of the seashore. So in the case of Barnabas, it it's, uh, relates to his character. And uh, so, you know, we need to interpret uh, when that happens, when there's two names, what, what that means. So he's also recognized for his generosity. Uh, Barnabas encouraged through his words, but also through his actions. And in Acts 4.36, he sold the property that he had and he put it at the apostles' feet. He was a great mentor. He was a protege for Paul when Paul was converted. And then in 9.27, he's the guy who vouched for him because everybody was afraid of him. He had killed many Christians. He, he was dangerous. And so uh, uh, Barnabas took the responsibility and had the courage 
to, to sponsor uh, Paul and open the way for him to enter the ranks of the disciples. <clears throat> Barnabas was also considered a good, good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, it says in Acts 11.24, which explains the success he and Paul had together in Antioch in their first mission trip. But Barnabas, he's, he's a softie. He's a people person. He's very concerned about damaging John Mark at a time where he's still very young and he has so much pot potential. He's also a relative of John Mark, with, which would amplify his concern. Let's look at Paul's personality profile. Different, but very similar in many ways. We know that he's a wholehearted guy, all or nothing type. As he was zealous as a Jew, he is now zealous as a Christian. He's a very passionate person. He's a strategic thinker. He has a good idea of what he wants to accomplish, what is needed, and what challenges lie ahead. He is also a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, as the scripture indicates through various passages, but discerns something about the situation with John Mark that caused him to arrive at a different conclusion. He is also a mentor, a patient mentor, Paul may have wanted to protect John Mark because of a perceived lack of maturity. Calls it as he sees it. This guy is not ready. He may have been thinking of the stoning in Lystra, which would have been a very difficult experience for him and wondered how John Mark would handle it. He is courageous. He demonstrates great bravery throughout his ministry. It takes courage to be the, per the guy who is willing to speak the truth despite what consequences uh, you, uh, you endure. You'll remember in his letter to the Galatians, he was not afraid to confront Peter and Barnabas to their face when they were eating with the Gentiles. They were acting as hypocrites, and Paul was courageous to speak the truth. So while it appears personalities may have played a factor in the disagreement, these are all speculations, okay? We don't know for sure because the Bible doesn't spell it out. But that's probably because it's not important. What is important is that the Holy Spirit is clearly pointing these two great men of faith who are both filled with the Holy Spirit in different directions. I believe that they end up disagreeing without being disagreeable. And why do I say that? Well, in 1 Corinthians 9, 5, 6, Barnabas is mentioned again working alongside Paul. The reference indicates that the, fresh, the friendship between the two was unimpaired. Nowhere else in the New Testament do we hear hard feelings mentioned between Paul and Barnabas. In one of his letters to Timothy, Paul asked for John Mark to be sent for his, for his useful to him. There may have been reconciliation, we don't know, but it may also mean there was no hard feelings to begin with. Also, we have an indication that these men are used to conflict resolution. They would have had many years of their experience in Judaism and as Christians involved in such disputes. Remember, Paul was a Pharisee and Barnabas was a Levite. Evidence also is shown to us how they handled the issue of circumcision just previously at the Jerusalem Council, which was much more complex than whether or not they should take somebody on a mission trip. It's safe to assume that they parted ways in a reasonable fashion. That led them to entertain the third option of separating, which opened the door to ministry multiplication. Barnabas and John go back to their 
homies in Cyprus to strengthen the missionary, to strengthen the, the ministry that he has started there. I think it was more of a healing mission. Uh, to use a football analogy, Barnabas wants to get John Mark back in the game. He fumbled the ball. He wants to give him another chance quickly to build his confidence. And at the same time, they would might visit key people like Sergius Paulus. Paul, on the other hand, finds a collegial partner in Silas, who's also named Silvanus, and he's commended to the work. He's a leading member in the church in Jerusalem. And you'll remember that he and Paul, they traveled together to Antioch to deliver the agreement that was, was um, uh, developed in, uh, in Jerusalem as an eyewitness. You know, he went with Paul and Barnabas to, to share what it was agreed upon, but he was also an eyewitness of the people that were there in Jerusalem, and uh, having him there brought credibility. He would end up working with Paul 10 to 15 years. He's also served as a scribe or secretary for, uh, for Peter, and he's known to be a devoted worker who, to, who endured hardships and persecution. So he's a good strategic choice, but they are still down a man. So as we look at the story, uh, here's one application. Sometimes we need to divide in order to conquer. Sometimes we need to divide in order to conquer. Now, I want to be very clear about something, okay? In most cases, especially in the church context, we are expected to stay united, to endure one another, to be long-suffering, to forgive each other just like Christ forgave us. Amen? That's what we're called to do. Also, this disagreement is not a he said, she said thing, right? It's not that type of disagreement. It's a disagreement about vision. It's a disagreement about strategy. It's a specific mission with a specific purpose under specific circumstances. In the business world, it'd be qualified as one needing situational leadership. Will it be a good decision for them to split up? We'll see. As with any difficult decision, we'll only find out after the fact. So now we go to the second scene here, and the new star disciple strengthens the, the mission. And I'll read for you that, uh, these verses. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. He was well spoken by the, by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decision that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in faith, and they increased in numbers. So Paul and start, uh, Silas start this mission on a risky note. They travel this time by land, as opposed to the first time they went through Cyprus, because Barnabas and John Mark are going in that direction. So they go through the Taurus Mountain to a road called the Cilician Gates. And they soon visit Lystra, a place where Paul was almost stoned to death on the first visit. It's interesting that Paul doesn't always choose to avoid the roadblocks that he encounters, but sometimes he bulldozes right through them. That could be true for us too. I have found in my own experience that sometimes the door that seems the most closed is the one the Lord is leading me through. Upon arriving in Lystra and Iconium, they meet with the believers there and receive an important reference in the person of Timothy, who was an unlikely disciple given his youth and his ethnicity. 
Interesting in a place where they had been met with the strongest opposition, they seemed to have developed strong allies and re received a strong lead to fortify the ministry. Even today, we know that to be true, that where there is the fiercest persecution, there are great outcomes. Paul probably evaluated Timothy and saw potential in him as a suitable replacement for John Mark. To have a third person join the team would be a great help. It's also an opportunity to mentor a new disciple. So who is he? Who is Timothy, this unlikely disciple? He was a mixed heritage. Mother and grandmother were Jewish converts, and the father was Greek. He was well-versed in the Bible, as is written in 2 Timothy 3.15. It says he was acquainted with the sacred scriptures from a young age. In contrast to John Mark, he will do well under pressure and will end up in jail with Paul in Philippi. Timothy will later be sent on important missions by Paul, such as delivering his letters to churches in Corinth and in Philippi. Paul would subsequently refer to Timothy as his true child in the faith and his beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Overall, Timothy is remembered as a faithful disciple, a trusted leader, and an example of dedication and perseverance. So in thinking what might come ahead, Paul takes measures to reduce, again, barriers to the gospel. Paul anticipates a roadblock bringing Timothy because his father is a Greek and they would know he's not circumcised. So in an interesting decision, Paul chooses to have Timothy circumcised because of the Jews that were in those places. It raises a question as to why, in light of the decision that was reached at the Jerusalem Council, that where circumcision was not necessary, why would now he be wanting to do this? And so some would say this is contradictory. It's even irreconcilable. But we know Paul's overriding desire is to win people to Christ Therefore, he is flexible in some of these things. We'll uh, get a, a little uh, indication of that uh, in 1 Corinthians 9, 20, 22. Uh, Paul spells out clearly here. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself, not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. I have become all things to all people that by some means I might save some. The fact that Timothy goes along with it shows us something about his own character that he is also willing to adapt for the sake of the gospel. And so after Timothy is circumcised, this new threesome uh, spread the agreement that was reached in Jerusalem to other cities and the response is very good. So far we see two indicators that their decision to split up was good. They recruit a new star disciple in Timothy, and the churches are strengthened and continue to grow in numbers. So what are some applications here? Number one, recognize the significance of mentoring others along the journey. Just like Barnabas did with Paul and John Mark, and Paul is doing now with Silas and Timothy, it is important for us to be mentoring others. We can be confused about a lot of things uh, in, in our Christian walk and say, you know, I don't know what God wants me to do, but one thing for sure, you're on the right track if you're mentoring people. Amen? If you're mentoring people. You know, many examples here, you know, like uh, James uh, he chaired this morning, now he's out and he's mentoring the youth. And uh, uh, 
praise God, a few of them are getting baptized in November. And this is just one good example. There's people uh, mentoring upstairs in the Sunday school, teaching those sacred scriptures, the same sacred scriptures that Timothy received when he was a child from his mother and from his grandmother. All these are important things, important mentoring uh, uh, service opportunities. And we need to be involved in mentoring. And by the way, the most important place is your own home, the address on your door. You, you are responsible to be mentoring there. And it poses the biggest challenge because you are judged not only by your words, but also by your actions. The second application is to persevere in sharing the gospel even when faced with initial opposition. I don't know how many times I've heard people who got opposition when they were being uh, witnessed to and that uh, they, they had strong opposition and then eventually they would accept the Lord uh, because people would be persistent with them in sharing their faith. And finally, demonstrate flexibility and adaptability in spreading the message of the gospel. Adjust to the situation without compromising your integrity. So up to now, they are following the original plan to visit the churches that they planted on their first trip. But in these next verses, there's going to be a new set of diversions that includes a vision from a Macedonian man that will lead to unplanned territory and unchartered uh, destinations. So I'll read for you that in, uh, from Acts 16.6 to 16.10. And they went through the region of Persia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word. First uh, roadblock. And then they came up to Mysia, and they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. That's the second roadblock. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the, man, in the night. A man from Macedonia was standing there and urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So now we're on the, the second missionary trip, and I just want to show you this map here. <clears throat> that, uh, and to point out the fact that the first, the uh, original intent was to go this area here, but that's where the first roadblock came. And then they tried to go here into Bithynia, and then again there was a roadblock, uh, the spirit of Jesus that stopped them from going there. Interesting that Bithynia is mentioned in 1 Peter uh, introduction. He was addressing the people in Bithynia. So probably the Lord had it for Peter to be ministering there and, and stop uh, Paul, and, Paul and his journeymates from going there. And so that's the second roadblock. And then he ends up going here in Troas. And that's true to Paul's uh, strategy of going to important cities. And that city was a very important seaport uh, to the point that Constantinople uh, wanted to make it the capital uh, at the time. So it was a very important location. And that's where they receive the vision of the Macedonian man. So similar to Peter's vision, you know, where Peter had seen a sheet come down and uh, that, that he would, uh, uh, with all the different animals, and that it was okay to eat, that everything was, was kosher to, for them to eat, this vision is more directional. It's, it's telling 
the, uh, Paul and, and the disciples to now go to Philippi, to go to, Macedon go to Macedonia. Paul is obedient. He changes course. Although he started with a very specific plan, he is willing to forego that in response to the Holy Spirit. He's probably familiar with that proverb that says, many are the plans in the man's heart, but it's the Lord's will that prevails. We too need to be in tune to those promptings when they come up. I'm afraid that too often we may set a certain course and we say to ourselves, I got to stick to this. I got to stick to this. And oftentimes, we should expect that the Holy Spirit is trying to take us on a different course. Notice the distance between Antioch and Corinth, okay? So the distance between Antioch, which is where they started from here, and where they will eventually end up, past the passages I'm covering today, here in Corinth, is 2,400 kilometers. Now, they walked 2,400 kilometers. To give you an idea, that is the distance from Montreal to Florida. Now, I drove from Montreal to Florida. I'm never going to drive from Montreal to Florida again, <laughs> ever, unless I'm retired and I got three weeks to get there. But as I, I looked at that, I said, boy, just that is enough to really say, wow, these guys were all in for the gospel. They were sold out to the gospel. There's another important transition that happens here, brothers and sisters. In verse 10, it says, when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Luke now writes using the first person plural, we. This reveals to us that he is now joining the team. And there are four now working together. Luke joins them in uh, Macedonia. Luke would become a faithful associate of Paul to the very end. He alone remained with Paul in Rome when he was in jail, when everybody else abandoned him. Paul writes that, that he alone stayed with me in, first, in uh, 2 Timothy 4. So what's the application here? Listening to God's direction over our own desires. We need to be, listen to this, we need to be strategic in our planning. I'm not saying you just follow the Holy Spirit, just go wherever the Holy Spirit tells you without any plan. You gotta have a plan. But sometimes God is gonna change that plan. He's gonna, he's gonna guide you in the place where he wants to go. How does God guide us? He guides us through his word, he guides us through prayer, through fasting, as we've seen the, uh, many times already. They prayed and fasted through other believers, and through the promptings of the Holy Spirit, especially when we are prioritizing his purpose, especially when we are in his will. That's when the Holy Spirit seems to be speaking to us louder. When we are passionate about him and his kingdom above every other pursuit in, in our lives. So when we do get a clear directive from God, let us not be afraid to step out in faith, knowing that he will go before us and guide us along the way. Finally, we get to the fourth scene. And it's from 1611 to 1615. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and to the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and the Roman colony. We remained in the city some days, 
And on the Sabbath, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we, were, we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay, and she prevailed upon us. Since Luke is now traveling with the team, is able to provide more detail about the journey, you'll notice. And that's why I've circled, I've put in red there the we's. You notice how many times now it's we, 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 to, to signify that, Paul, that Luke is, is accompanying them. And so the Macedonian man's vision leads Paul across the Aegean to the, the Philippi, which is today Greece in Europe. My wife says it's beautiful there. Uh, we have to visit. I've been to Athens. I've been to Corinth. I've been to Greece. But the northern part, Thessalonica and Philippi, I haven't been and would like to go. Shav and gloats about the fact that the first place where Christianity landed was in Greece. And I have to gently and kindly remind her that it was a Roman empire at the time. And the Romans had built the roads. <laughs> and then I laugh hysterically. <laughs> As a Roman colony enjoyed certain privileges and was heavily influenced by the Roman culture, the city had a mixed population, including Roman veterans and merchants. And here, Paul maintains his strategy to first speak to the Jews in synagogues, goes to the seashore due to the absence of a synagogue. The reason there is no synagogue there is because it takes a quorum of 10 men, 10 family men, to have a synagogue. So in Philippi, there was no synagogue. So where do people go in the absence of a synagogue? They go to the riverside. And they have oftentimes prayer houses. And they're built near water sources to simplify ritual washings. That's why they would gather near the water. And that's where you meet Lydia. The fact that they mention her by name and give much information about her is very, very significant. Because in other places, they don't mention her by name. They don't mention people by name. Like they'll say a slave girl, they'll say the jailer, but here they mention the person's name, which tells us she is significant. What is Lydia's profile? She's a merchant of purple. People wore purple, purple as a sign of nobility. Purple was valuable and expensive, which meant she had to have wealthy clientele. She comes from Thyatira in the territory of Lydia, where the process of dyeing purple is well-renowned. So Thyatira is in Asia. And right now we're in Europe, right? So she, she is coming there selling what is produced in Thyatira. And Thyatira is an area called Lydia, just like Rosemount is in Montreal. So some commentators say she's named Lydia because she's the Lydian lady, the Lydia, the person that comes from Lydia. That's just one theory. She probably was widowed or divorced and head of her household since women in biblical times were often identified with a male relative, if that was the case. She's a courageous woman because she invited the missionaries in her home, which have been considered scandalous to do so in those times. It also risked persecution, uh, as would happen to Jason later on in Thessalonica. 
What about Lydia's faith? She is described as a God worshiper, an adherent of Judaism, but not a convert. She's not a proselyte, okay? She's attracted to the monotheism and the morality of the Jewish faith. She is a sincere seeker like the Ethiopian man who was primed to receive the gospel. She was a hospitable, an indicator of God working in her heart. She accepted the gospel message and was immediately baptized along with her household. So what would be Lydia's impact? Lydia would become later known as the first European convert. She is likely the first person to have led and cared for the first church in Philippi. The church in Philippi becomes one of the most supportive churches in Paul's missions. We read that, that they were a joyful community and a giving community. As a result of the gospel's traction in Europe, it would extend its reach to the ends of the earth. Up to the 19th century, up to the end of the 19th century, it is mainly from Europe that missionaries went to other parts of the world, to all the other different continents to spread the gospel. So that's how significant it is, the fact that uh, the gospel arrives in Europe. So what are, some, what are a couple of applications here? Our faithfulness in sharing the gospel can lead to transformative encounters with God and the kingdom of his growth. We need to recognize when we have these divine encounters. Just as Paul and his companions were guided to the riverside, we should be aware of opportunities that God places in our lives to share the gospel. Pray for discernment to recognize these divine encounters. The second one is the importance of seeking opportunities where the soil is fertile to plant the seeds of faith. Consider Paul's strategies once again. What did he do? He went where people were hungering for God. He went where there was a synagogue. He went where people were thinking of different philosophies. He went where people were looking to answer the existential questions. So that's where we also need to think about what that we, we need to be looking for those opportunities and places where the soil is fertile to receive the word of God. So as I come to the end, I want to offer some concluding thoughts. We've covered many scenes. We've seen many applications. I hope they're, they're going to be helpful to you in, in some way. But I want to leave you, um, I want to leave you to consider something. Reflect on the roadblocks and obstacles you may be faced with today. And I know you may be faced with roadblocks right now that are extremely difficult. Some not so difficult, some extremely difficult, some that seem like there's no way I'm getting around this. Might God be leading you to view them from a different perspective? Might, be, might this be an opportunity where he is leading you to somewhere that you have not yet recognized as signposts to guide you rather than a, a way to beat you, defeat you, or paralyze you. There could be opportunities of something great right around the corner, so consider your options. Another thing is consider Paul's wholeheartedness as he traveled through long distances. We saw there 2,400 kilometers, overcame difficult circumstance 
and witnessed unashamed. What can we do to honor the legacy of such a man, and more importantly, to honor Christ? What can we do to emulate the type of passion that Paul and his journeymates had for the gospel? That passion won't happen unless we unleash the power within, which is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives us all speech, all power, all wisdom to navigate the toughest of obstacles. You know, 1 John, the letter of 1 John, ends with a very obscure sentence. It says this, Little children, keep yourself from idols. There's no salutation. There's no goodbyes. But you know, that's such a significant phrase. John Calvin once wrote, our, idol, our hearts are full of idol factories. When we are putting above our passion for God, when we are putting things that go above our passion for God, we're going to have trouble di discerning the challenges and roadblocks we face. It could be our hobbies or sports, our careers, our financial goals, our families, vacations, social media. All these we can engage with as long as they don't overpower the passion we should have for God. Sometimes this, this is the biggest roadblock we need to remove. I started biking this year. I've enjoyed it thoroughly. I go every day for one hour. I really enjoy it. But if I start to enjoy that more than I enjoy worshiping God and serving God, it becomes a problem. I shared that with Keith. We talk about biking. He said, Nick, don't wear those tight pants, whatever you do. Don't buy those tight pants. <laughs> I promised him I wouldn't get that passionate. Even if we are failing and our passions are misaligned, God is patient. And God is gracious, and he wants to put us on the right track. James says he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell within us. He yearns jealously for the spirit he has made to dwell in us. As believers, we are immensely blessed to have constant access to the Holy Spirit who provides guidance and wisdom to navigate through any challenge or obstacle we may face. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the lessons we have learned from this passage in Acts. Help us to seek unity in our relationships, follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, and trust you in times of anxiety and adversity. May our journey of faith bring us closer to you and allow us to be a witness to your love and to your grace. Father, I pray for anybody here today who is having a difficult time navigating to a very substantial roadblock that they are facing. Lord, would you provide them with the wisdom and the patience and the courage they need to either penetrate that barrier, to know the wisdom to go around it, or to sit patiently and wait for you to give them direction. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. May the peace and the grace of Christ lead you 